Christ Church Kingwood is a Christ-centered church that seeks to proclaim the gospel in both word and deed by glorifying God and making disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us now as we worship together in the ministry of the word. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Good morning, Christ Church. The sermon text this morning is Philippians 1, 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always and every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Father God, lead us into worship this morning. Stir our hearts by your spirit through your word. Shape us into a people that reflect your love in the way that we live out our faith together. And let us experience the joy of fellowship with you and with your people, that your name would be glorified in the earth. Amen. Well, good morning. There's a lot of new faces. So I'm Patrick. I'm one of the pastors here. Good to have you. It's good to have the rest of you as well. Um, you do, you're doing good? Good to be ready. So we're officially diving in to the book of Philippians, or the letter to the Philippian church. As you know, if you've been around two weeks ago, we read through the letter here corporately, and then last week we looked at kind of the planting of this church from Acts 16, and now we are officially jumping in to the letter itself. And as you heard here at the beginning, or you've probably read through it all week in preparation for this, um, the overarching theme of this letter is joy. Paul is urging and encouraging the Philippian believers to experience the supernatural joy that has been offered in Christ. 
It's a joy that's not dictated by circumstances, a joy that cannot be taken away. It's a joy rooted in the unwavering love of our God and all the promises that we have in him. So that's the theme that we will see throughout this letter. And the tone of this letter is very different than most of Paul's letter, letters. Because Paul's not writing to address problems or issues going on in the church. Right? Typically, when Paul wrote letters, he kind of had a bone to pick. He would be addressing wrong doctrine or sinful living or false teachers in the church. But here we have a letter of encouragement and thanksgiving. That's not to say that they didn't have their own problems, but the tone of the letter as a whole is just super encouraging. As we talked about a few weeks ago, from the very moment Paul came to Philippi and planted this church, they had been actively involved in the gospel mission. They were not a wealthy people by any stretch, but they were tremendously generous. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, they gave according to their means and beyond their means of their own accord. They had supported Paul with money and supplies and encouragement, and they sent their beloved friend Epaphroditus to Rome, risking his life to care for Paul's needs. They may not have been rich in a worldly sense, but they were rich in love and had become partners with Paul in this gospel mission. And this idea of gospel partnership is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. Because in this letter, after his customary salutation, in verses 3 through 5, Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So imagine with me for a second that you are unjustly incarcerated. And you're not sure if you're going to be set free or killed, but you have this way to communicate with the outside world. Like before email, they wrote letters. So you can write these letters. What is your letter going to look like? What would it look like? I would love to say that when we're in a bad spot or difficult situation, our go-to is, man, how can I encourage others right now? Right? Wouldn't that be awesome? But I, sometimes that's not exactly how it goes down. When we're struggling or wronged or in a rough situation, it's pretty hard to see past ourselves or our situation. It's hard. And if we're sitting in prison unjustly accused, chances are that if we had the opportunity to communicate with the outside world, we'd probably be writing whatever influential people we know, right? Proclaiming our innocence, talking about the unjust treatment, or maybe just complaining if that's what you like to do, right? This stinks. It's not fair. Nobody wants to be in prison. And nobody wants to be unjustly charged. And yet, here's Paul. He's writing a letter, and he doesn't know if this will be the last communication that he will ever have with these people he loves. And he sits down, and he says, I thank God every time I remember you. My prayers for each and every one of you are full of joy. 
And where does this seemingly unwarranted joy come from? He says, my joy stems from your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. It is their partnership in the gospel that brings Paul supernatural joy in the midst of a dark situation. And the the Greek word here for partnership that Paul uses is koinonia. It's more commonly translated as fellowship in the New Testament. So Paul finds great joy through their fellowship or partnership in the gospel. And this fellowship is an interesting word. What do we mean when we talk about fellowship? Because the church has kind of taken this word fellowship and created its own meaning. It's almost comical. We've made fellowship something that is exclusive to believers. So if you invite a non-believing neighbor over for dinner, you call it friendship or being a good neighbor. But if you invite over a church friend, it's fellowship. It's weird, right? You are now fellowshipping. It's a verb. If you come to church and you leave right after, you've taken part in a service. You have entered into worship. But if you stay after, if you talk for a few minutes, you've enjoyed some fellowship. Right? Or if you, like me, grew up Baptist, you know that they, they build these big buildings and they have a whole room that's sheerly dedicated to fellowshipping. You know what that room was? Fellowship Hall. It's where the donuts go. Yes. And listen, we're all about deep relationships between believers. But this word, fellowship, has strayed far from its biblical meaning. Our modern use of fellowship has come to mean something like warm friendships with believers or spending time with believers. It's virtually indistinguishable from any other friendship we have. We just call it something different because we like to label things. But in the first century, the word had like commercial overtones. So if Daniel and Carrie used their savings to buy a boat together to start a fishing business, they entered into fellowship. They've entered into a partnership. And we see this in the New Testament as well in Romans 15, 26, when the Macedonian Christians send their money to help the poor Christians in Jerusalem, they were entering into fellowship, into gospel partnership with them. But there was no conversation, <clears throat> no coffee, no donuts, but they were in fellowship. They were partnering with them. So the heart of true biblical fellowship is not good conversation. It's not sharing a meal. Those may very well be the result of fellowship, but true gospel fellowship is self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. See, both Daniel and Carrie had to put their savings into buying this boat. They had to sacrifice and risk, and now they share this vision that will put this startup company on its feet. So Christian fellowship, which is interchangeable with gospel partnership, is self-sacrificing conformity to the vision of the gospel. There may be overtones of warmth and intimacy, but the heart of the matter is the shared vision for something of transcendent importance. 
a vision that calls forth our commitment, our time, our energy, our resources, our very lives. So when Paul and Barnabas had their little disagreement that we talked about a few weeks ago, they went their separate ways. In modern terms, we would say that they broke fellowship, right? They broke fellowship because they had a disagreement and they went two different directions. But in reality, their shared commitment to the gospel vision never wavered. They had a disagreement. They had different ideas about how best to advance the gospel. They went their separate ways for a time, but they were still partners in the gospel, still in fellowship for a common cause that was greater than themselves. They were still partners in the gospel because the gospel mission was greater than their current disagreement, greater than their pride or their opinions. Or if you ever watched or read supposedly our books, uh, Lord of the Rings, anybody? (laughs) You know that Tolkien must have understood the true meaning of fellowship. His unlikely cast of characters with elves and dwarves and humans and lots of other weird things You ring junkies probably know all their names. Please don't say them. Uh, These people in the story were not gathered because of common interest or proximity or like they didn't share hobbies. They weren't gathered because they really liked each other, right? It was quite the opposite for many of them. But they were brought together because of a shared vision, a vision for something greater than themselves that called forth sacrifice to achieve this unified vision. And the subtitle of the first book was The Fellowship of the Rings. That's the kind of fellowship or partnership that Paul is referencing here in this text. So when Paul gives thanks with joy because of the Philippians' partnership in the gospel, he is thanking God that these brothers and sisters in Christ, from the moment of their conversion, literally from the first day until now, Paul said, they have shared in and sacrificed for the common vision of the advancement of the gospel. They had continued their witness in Philippi. They never stopped praying for Paul, and they supported his ministry and the church in Jerusalem. All of these things testify to their shared vision of the importance and the priority of the gospel mission. The bond that held Paul and these Philippians together was not common interest, right? Paul was a Jew. They were culturally pagans. It wasn't proximity. It wasn't age. The bond they shared was far more than a warm feeling of affection. It's not like if you go to the the Starbucks, the Starbucks, right? On Saturday, like the cycling team shows up, you know, unified around bicycles. And so they ride their bikes and they show up and they talk about their bikes. Super cool. I used to do that, so I'm not knocking them. It wasn't like that. It was more like SEAL Team 6. People willing to give their lives for a cause greater than themselves willing to give their lives for one another. They were a people who took seriously Jesus' call that if anyone would come after me, they must die to themselves, pick up their cross, and follow me. That was the vision that they had invested their lives in. 
The Philippians had consistently and abundantly offered their lives to the gospel mission. They had invested their lives in this vision. And it is a vision that transcends distance and age and common interests entirely. And this is Paul's joy. Gospel partnership is a gift from God that brings us immense joy and confidence in the face of struggle. Because we don't have to struggle alone. No matter how dark our situation or how devastating the pain, God has given us co-laborers to struggle alongside. So Paul, as he sits in prison, is sustained by knowing there are others standing with him for the gospel. And when we lose sight of the fellowship of believers in the midst of our struggle, or we reject the fellowship of believers, darkness is never far away. Elijah experienced this in 1 Kings 19. After defeating the prophets of Baal, most epic story ever, Elijah fled to Horeb, and there, while physically exhausted and spiritually drained, he cried out to God and said, Kill me. Take my life. Because in his estimation, he was the only faithful prophet left in the land. He thought he was the only one. To which God says, wrong, Elijah. Not true. I have 7,000 others who, like you, have not bowed their knee to Baal. God reminded Elijah that he was not alone. And Elijah didn't even know these believers, but simply realizing they were there. That he wasn't alone in God's mission brought him strength to endure. See, gospel partnership is critical for the health of the church. It's crit critical for Christ's church as we seek to serve and love and care for this community. And Paul doesn't just talk about gospel partnership at the opening of his letter. He paints this picture for us of what it looks like in his life. And there are five identifying marks of gospel partnership that I want to briefly point out from this text. And the first is that gospel partnership leads to thanksgiving and joy. In verses 3 and 4, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. And so it's really kind of simple. When the struggles of life well up, when hardship comes, we can do one of two things. We can look at ourselves. We can focus on our problems. We can stew in frustration or depression or anger, depending on which way you go. Or we can look upward and outward. Upward to our unshakable, sovereign God and outward to those he has united us with to navigate this life. See, Paul was in Roman prison. He could have easily talked about his situation and the frustration and the injustice, but no, he chose to remember these faithful believers and to be thankful for them, to encourage them. And that didn't fix his situation, but it did change his perspective. It directed his heart to God. So, let me ask this. Do you give thanks regularly for your brothers and sisters in Christ? 
Do you thank God for them? For those who love and support you when things are good or when things are hard. And when they get difficult, do we stew in frustration and turn in on ourselves? Or do we look outside and fight for gratitude? Because thanks, thankfulness, thanksgiving, it's a discipline. It's a conscious act of setting our minds on the blessings of God. It's looking outside of ourselves to see his grace-filled provision and partnership and love. Paul says, I thank my God every time I remember you. Always in every prayer. See, we have the ability and the joy to not live in isolation to enter into the blessing of life together. Through thankfulness, we not only open our eyes and our hearts to the blessing of this gift, but we combat the ever-growing pressure of narcissistic individualism in our culture. And I can tell you with certainty, if you are not a thankful person, if you're not actively engaged in the discipline of thankfulness, you will not be a joyful person. You won't. Joy abounds in thanksgiving. And second, gospel partnership endures no matter what. Paul says in 5 and 6, Did I give thanks because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now? And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ or at the day of Jesus Christ. So we seem to live in a time where not a lot endures. When I was in college, I bought an old washing machine for $50 off Craigslist, and I used it for four years, and I sold it for $50. You remember those days? Today, I feel like I'm dropping $800 every year and a half because they keep breaking. Things just don't seem to endure as they once did. But it's not just stuff, right? A lack of endurance, a lack of long-suffering has kind of become the cultural norm. When relationships get hard, you bail. When marriages get difficult, eh, get a divorce. Sure, it was a lifelong commitment, an oath before God, but it's been relegated to these ceremonial words with little power or commitments. People are constantly looking for the least amount of work to get the results that they're looking for, the path of least resistance. But the gospel partnership Paul talks about in these verses stands the test of time. He points to the Philippians' partnership from the first day until now, and he's confident that this partnership will continue, which began with God. It began with God, and he is confident it will endure until the end, until Christ returns, because God is in the middle of it. He who began this good work will bring it to completion. There's so many stories these days about people being burned by the church, right? It's like every person I talk to who shows up here is like, oh, I've been burned, right? You need some time. I've got one. i got a bad experience. We can just have like a, let's all talk about how the church burned us. Right? We can all relate. But if these bad experiences at a church drive us away from the church, 
If they turn us off to the body of believers, the reality is that we've never experienced gospel partnership. You may have been a deacon. You may have taught Sunday school or served on the building committee, but committing to tasks in the church is not the same as committing to the people of the church. Covenanting with God's people. See, gospel partnership transcends tasks and duties and relational struggles because it is rooted in the eternal. It's rooted in what God has done, and it will endure to the end. Thirdly, gospel partnership starts with grace and unconditional love. Verses 7 and 8, It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul says, I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And what, what is that? What is the affection that Christ Jesus has for us? Unconditional love, grace, and forgiveness. You see, when we are thankful people, when our commitment to the gospel endures, the affection of Jesus Christ fills our heart. Love and grace and forgiveness become the affections of our heart for our brothers and sisters. This is the love that exists in gospel partnership. It is seeing others as Christ sees us. It is judging other believers based on what Christ has done in them rather than based on their imperfection. It's wanting others to experience abundant life because you love them with the love of Christ. Sometimes this means looking past imperfections and holding your tongue when you want to speak. And other times it means speaking out against sin when you would rather remain silent. Gospel partnership sometimes means having hard conversations, addressing sin, Engaging with people whose personalities may conflict with yours. Because we can love people with the love of Christ even if they are not our best friends. Even if we have nothing else in common. Because the catalyst of gospel partnership is the unmerited grace and love of Jesus. Right? Do you remember last week the three people that we met in Acts 16? Lydia, slave girl, jailer. I don't think these three had a lot in common. I don't think they rolled in the same circles. They didn't have the same hobbies. They didn't hang out at the same place on the weekend. But the gospel transcended their differences and united them with a supernatural call on their lives. Which is why Paul would say when he's writing to the Colossians, he says, Here, that is in the church of Jesus Christ, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. 
The dividing lines of the world have been broken down in Christ. He says here, Christ is all and in all. Christ is all and in all. Gospel partnership begins with the grace and mercy and love of Jesus. And it is sustained by that love. Fourth gospel partnership multiplies your love through Jesus Christ. Verses 9 and 10. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve of what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ Jesus. When we invest our lives in the gospel together, our love will abound more and more. When we read scripture together and encourage one another and share lives rooted in the love of Christ, our love will grow. It's not simply a product of knowing more. It's not just gaining information. Anybody can do that. Paul prays that our love would abound with knowledge and all discernment. You see, knowledge is easy, but discernment, that's a little more difficult. Knowing how to apply and when to apply that knowledge with love, that's discernment. That's harder. When we invest in the community of faith, it is that very community that God uses to help shape and mold us into the image of Christ. But it's hard. It requires opening our lives up to one another. It requires vulnerability and selflessness. But if the driving force in our lives is the gospel bearing fruit in our community and in this world, then we need our brothers and sisters to speak into our lives. We need them to walk with us through difficult times. Helping us to, as Paul says, approve of what is excellent. Because I think all too often we settle for pretty good. We settle for okay. But Paul is calling us to excellency. He prays that we would grow so that we might approve of what is excellent. And this is not a battle cry for the type A perfectionist. It's a call like Jesus in the Sermon on the Mound to hunger and thirst for righteousness. To push forward as co-laborers, building one another up, encouraging one another and supporting one another with the love of Christ. It is a call to excellency in love. When we are thankful for our partners in the gospel, we want what's best for them. We pray for them. We long for them to experience the abundant love that Christ has for them through the fellowship of believers. This is Paul's prayer for the church. That as we grow to know God more and more, that we would grow to know and love one another. And that together, as a community, as a people, we would be conformed into the image of Jesus. And finally, gospel partnership produces 
fruit. Paul desires all of us, desires this for all of us, so that we might be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. If we live joyful, thankful lives, enduring in gospel partnership, trusting in Jesus and pointing one another to the love of Christ, what do you think is going to be the result? There's going to be fruit. There's going to be fruit. We will see life brought out of death. We will see joy spring up from sorrow. We will see God work miraculously in our midst because fruit is the product of us becoming more like Jesus, pursuing him together. This is gospel partnership. This is the life of the family of God. Gospel partnership is the call of the church. If we're not willing to give our lives to the gospel and to the people of God that we are united with through the gospel, then we are wasting our time. Wasting. And we must always remember that gospel partnership rests on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Seems obvious, right? But it's easy to lose sight of the bond that holds us together. Our thanksgiving, our endurance, our love, and the fruit flow from what Christ has done. We're not achieving, we're reflecting. He is the bond that unites us. The gospel is the ultimate vision. That we were all in bondage to sin and death, but Christ, through his immeasurable love from before the foundation of the world, chose us in him for grace. He lived the perfect, sinless life that we could not live, and he paid the ultimate price that we could not pay in his death. And he rose again, breaking the chains of sin and death and called us his family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, part of a fellowship that promises to bring immeasurable joy. But the cost of joining this partnership is your life. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 25, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Let's pray. Father God, we know that everything you have called us to in your word is contrary to the wisdom of this world and contradictory to the desires of our flesh. But we believe that true life and joy can only be found when we lay our lives down for the gospel and for one another. God, we confess that this is hard, that everything in us at times pushes against this call. But we proclaim with the Apostle Peter, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Thank you for worshiping with us through the preaching of God's word. We exist to glorify God by making disciples. 
We would love to have you join us in person as we gather together on Sundays at 10 a.m. at the Covenant Preparatory School on Hamblin Road in Kingwood, Texas. To learn more about Christ Church Kingwood, visit our website at ChristChurchKingwood.org. Amen.